Hi friends, what a strange Easter this is. I have to admit, I've been a little bit down this week. Probably a number of reasons, but one of those, it just seems like an Easter without an Easter, right? I mean, maybe it feels that way to you too. Here we have Easter day, but there's no Easter breakfast, no gathering together of all the people that we love to sing hymns of resurrection, to, to hear the words, he is risen. Uh, no Easter egg hunt or meal with your extended family and friends. It seems like an Easter without Easter. I want to tell you a story of another group of people who also shared an awkward and difficult Easter. Like us, they were locked up in a room, although for a different reason, and they felt acutely anxious about the unknown until Jesus walked into the room and everything changed. Surprisingly enough, it was the first Easter, the very day that Jesus rose from the dead. That night, the disciples, which probably included a group of 10 to 20 women, met together, but they were not having a joyous celebratory meal. They weren't triumphantly singing resurrection hymns. They were meeting together in order to brace each other in the fear of the unknown, to try to sort some things out. They had lost so much, been so traumatized by what happened, and yet they had also heard the words of the women that Jesus had risen again. They met together to sort this out. Could this really be true? Dead men don't rise. They had seen him crucified. They had seen him buried. And now, with their leader gone, they knew that there were easy pickings for the Jewish leaders if they chose to, to come and arrest them, maybe even worse. So they met together with fear and anxiety behind locked and closed doors. The story is told both in John's Gospel and Luke's, and we'll quote from both. But I want us to see just a, a very brief reenactment of the way that John records this night. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Notice how the night begins. Confusion, fear, anxiety about the unknown. And some of this, to be frank, is their own fault, right? Jesus had already told them, I am going to die and rise again. And the women had come from the tomb that very morning with the news of the angel, he is not here, he is risen. But maybe we shouldn't be too hard on these disciples here. 
I mean, after all, nothing seems more final than death. Besides, their grief and their shock after the crucifixion likely made them wonder what they ever could believe. So here they are, huddled together, caught between a little bit of hope and a whole lot of loss, wondering what to believe, wondering what to do. And then Jesus walks into the room and everything changes. In fact, he brings change with him, as he always does. First, he brings a word of peace and blessing. Peace be with you. The word in the original language is going to be very familiar to us. It's just shalom. It's, it's an all-embracing word. It's not just peace in the absence of conflict, but wholeness, rightness, blessedness. It is the one word that sums up the unlimited well-being of God's people in the age to come. Jesus' shalom that evening is the complement to his it is finished on the cross. For the peace of God comes through the cross, and the cross is what brings that peace. In order that they don't miss the point that he's now bringing this well-being, this peace, he repeats it, peace be with you. When he walks into the room, he brings a blessing of wholeness and peace unlike we've ever known. When he walks into the room, he also brings joy, a joy that replaces the fear and the anxiety. Where before they were in fear, they were upset, uh, they were afraid of the Jewish leaders and of the unknown, they're now overjoyed simply to be with him. Would they still face opposition and persecution? Yes, uh, many of them would. You only have to read the book of Acts to see that. But his presence not only strengthened them, but the wounds on his body, his resurrected body, assured them that suffering is not the end of the story. Jesus brings with him also the way forward. Though the wording is different, both John's Gospels and Luke's Gospels record Jesus giving them a commission that night or repeating and re-emphasizing the commission he'd already given them. He tells them to go, preach the good news, offer forgiveness of sins to all who hear. I mean, surely among many of the things that crossed their minds that long weekend, they had to be wondering, what now? What do we do? Where do we go? How do we follow a dead man? And Jesus shows them their commission is not extinguished. It is strengthened. It is given new life. Finally, and best of all, Jesus brings the Holy Spirit. Already in John chapter 14 and 15, a few chapters before this, he had told them that he would. He said he would send another advocate, another comforter or helper, uh, but that this one, though he would be like Jesus, would only come after Jesus had gone to the cross. And, and the reason being, I think, that only after our sin problem is dealt with can the Holy Spirit really be able to dwell with us fully. And now that time has come. Though the Spirit would come in fullness and power 50 days later at Pentecost, Jesus this night gives them an initial impartation of that. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. That brings us to the second part of the sermon. Here's the good news. He's still walking into the room. He's still walking into our room. He does this now through the Holy Spirit. He is still here, present with us, fulfilling his promise 
Lo, I am with you everywhere, even to the end of the age. And this changes everything. I'm not alone, and you're not alone. He has walked into the room with us. He is still bringing a word of peace and blessing. He is still bringing a joy that replaces fear, even in our doubts and our uncertainty. He is still showing us the way forward. He does this now through his Holy Spirit, who is with us and in us and amongst us. So the question that may come into our minds then is this. All right, how do we get get him to come into this room, right? How do we get Jesus through the Holy Spirit to come in? And, And that's actually the wrong question because he's already here. There's no place we can go where the Spirit is not. I emphasize this, well, because to be frank, we've got a lot of songs that people in churches are singing today that have good intentions but poor theology that are asking the Holy Spirit, inviting the Holy Spirit to come in, and he's already there. So he's already come at Pentecost for the first believers and for us at the moment of our salvation. As Paul says in in 1 Corinthians, anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of God does not have Christ. You can't get someone to come in who is already here. But there is a right question hidden in all that. And that question is something like this. All right, how can I see and experience the presence of the one who's already here? Let me illustrate the difference between these two kinds of questions. Like many of you, I am quarantined with my spouse. We go out very seldom, so most days we're alone all day, every day, with each other in the house. It would be odd for me to ask Amy to come into the house. She's already there. But I can either, through my actions, I can either seek to draw closer to her, to seek her um, to seek her input and her presence and, and conversation, or I could pretty much try to do my own thing as much as possible to to put myself into my own interests apart from her and just seek her when I have to or when I want something from her. You see, it's not just her physical presence that's at play here, but the full enmeshing of our experiences that day. And, and that's similar to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter three. In Ephesians three. He's describing to the believers in Ephesus how he prays for them, and by extension, how he prays for those like us. And he says this, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, wait a second. He's already writing to believers. So they already have Christ in their hearts. So what can Paul mean when he says, I pray that God dwells in your heart through faith? Well, the answer to this is by understanding that that word dwell, as Paul used it, is a very strong word. It means more than just being in the same place. It means to be fully at home with. If you go to a hotel and you're in a hotel room, you're technically in that whole hotel room, but you're not really at home there. You're there for a night. You're a temporary resident. But if you've got a home that you've lived in for 10 or 20 or more years, with your family, and over the years you've decorated it, maybe redecorated it, and you've, you've painted it, you've put the, the things in there that you like, things that express your values, things that express your purpose and what you find delightful, you might come at the end of that 10 or 20 or 30 years and say, you know, we, re- we really are at home here. This home reflects who we are. That's what Paul has in mind. That's what I would suggest we need to 
ask that question. How can God be fully at home in us? How can we fully embrace his presence? I would suggest three things. First, cultivate a daily sense of his presence with you by setting aside a time and a place to commune with him. Cultivate a daily sense of his presence with you by setting aside a time and a place to commune with him. For most of us, this will be what we call our devotions, our quiet time, and it can take a lot of different forms. It's going to look different for you than for me. It looks different for me now than it did 20 years ago. It may involve studying the Word. It may involve reading the Word. It will likely include worship or prayer especially. The point is not that there's a formula. The point is not that there's a box to tick off on my to-do list. The point is that there's a very good chance in all the busyness of life that we have that unless I set aside a time or a place to dwell with God, that I may not fully embrace His presence with me. Second, ask God, especially and specifically, to walk with you, to be visible to you in the difficult or the uncertain times or areas of your life. Invite him to speak to your inner thoughts or or to, to guide your mind and your thoughts, to bring scriptures to mind, to be there in a special way in the problem areas. It might be an area of sin and temptation. It might be an area of failure. It might be an area just of anxiety or worry about the days ahead. Ask God to especially come alongside you in those areas. Ask him to minister through his Holy Spirit whatever you need to know and receive. Third, remember one thing as you do all this. Remember that the sign of Jesus' presence, the sign of his presence are his scars. What's the first thing he asked the disciples to do? Look at my scars. Make sure it's me because I am the crucified Messiah. And then he says, don't be afraid. Have peace. The signs of the scars of Jesus still there on his crucified but glorified body, they're the signs of his heart, of his love for you and for me. They remind us how deeply he loves us. The book of Hebrews tells us that he endured the cross for the joy set before him the joy of bringing you to himself, restoring you to all the love of the Trinity. They remind us they are a sign that evil and ugliness exist, yes, but they won't have the last word. The scars do not minimize suffering. They display it while at the same time transcending it. About a hundred years ago, Shortly after the horrors of World War I, a minister named Edward Shiletto wrote a poem called Jesus of the Scars. Let me read it to you. If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus of the Scars. 
The heavens frighten us, they are too calm. In all the universe we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us, where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, you draw near, only reveal those hands and that side of thine. We know today what wounds are, have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to thy throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. The scars remind us that his presence with us is one of blessing, even when we don't see that blessing right now. For Jesus came to bring shalom, even at the price of the cross. He gave of, him, of his very self to be with us. Suffering does not negate God's plan. It does not negate his love. For the scars of Jesus remind us of the question that Paul asked in Romans 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God gave up his own precious son for us, won't he also, along with him, graciously give us all good things? When Jesus walks into your room and shows you the scars, everything changes.